Well, good morning, everyone. Kindness and goodness. This is week 27 of our journey in Believe, and uh, we are coming toward the end of it, but wow, these qualities, these virtues are so important and set forth in Scripture. I want to share with you a story that happened over 30 years ago. This was about a young woman named Catherine. She was on the L.A. freeway, and uh, she was really passing through a really rough section of town when something started happening wrong with her car. She took the nearest exit, and before she reached the end of that off-ramp, uh, her car conked out, the lights went out, not only the headlights but the dash lights, completely dead. She rolled to a stop, and then worse yet, uh, smoke started filling the inside of her car, and she jumped out and saw two men running towards her, and she thought, I'm dead. But they pushed right past her, and they uh, popped open the hood. One of them had a blanket he grabbed out of the trunk of his car, and they smothered the flames that were coming off that engine. They saw the fire truck come, but by that time, the fire was out, and she looked around for the two men that had not only saved her car, but probably saved her life, uh, just to try to thank them, but they were gone. So she had a dilemma. How was she going to be able to express thanks to people she couldn't even reach out to? Them? So she made a decision right then and there. She was going to provide an act of kindness for someone else that uh, would come into her pathway, just as these men had done for her. And the first person she encountered was another woman stranded on the freeway, and she helped that lady out. And that lady tried to pay her, and she said, no, 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 don't, don't pay me back. In fact, pay it forward to someone else. So you recognize that phrase. Catherine Hyde thought about that for 20 years before she wrote a book called Pay It Forward, which then became a major motion picture in the year 2000. Great idea. It was actually God's idea, wasn't it? He wanted people, his people, to pay forward his kindness and goodness uh, that they would get the ball rolling. And that's what I want us to consider as we think about these virtues, these two fruit of the Spirit this week. And what I want us to consider is that Good deeds of kindness display God's goodness. Paul wrote to Titus, a little letter toward the end of the New Testament, but it was an important letter because Titus was a disciple of the Apostle Paul's. He'd gone up to minister in what is today Kosovo, or the Federation of Yugoslavia, which is west of Italy. And, and he needed to know how to instruct these people up there, what was important, so Paul writes this letter to do just that. And I want us to look at the third chapter of Titus and uh, this letter to him and surround it with some principles. And these principles are in your bulletin. Here's the first one. The kindness and goodness of God saved us from sin's enslavement and penalty, not by our good deeds, but for them. Here's how Paul expresses it, verse 1. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. You're going to see 
woven through this chapter the, the theme of good deeds. First thing he tells them is remind them to be ready for every good deed. So that's a word to us as well, to be ready for every good deed. And then he goes on and says, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. Selfishness, self-centeredness. He says that was our former way of life. That was it because it was about us. It was about our pleasures. It was about pursuing our lusts. It was about our agenda. And if there would have been an act of kindness, it probably would have been the exception to the rule. And the culture of the first century was a mean and hostile culture. Um, I think ours is becoming such today. In fact, I saw an article in the Star Advertiser this morning in the Insight section, and the title of it was, Politicians today are so mean because they are just like us. In the article, this lady says that politics is downstream from the public culture and said that people in both parties, politicians in both parties, are reflecting the culture and not only that, they're playing off of us because those are the things we like to hear as a culture. It's a real indictment on the uncivility that has grown to be commonplace in our culture today and how uh, we express that to one another. And you see it in social media. The tweets that go out, the Facebook comments, the blogs, the just normal kinds of emails or, uh, that can go forth or uh, maybe on the internet where you're reviewing something. Wow, people are vicious, aren't they? And we can fall into that same trap. In fact, that's the way we used to be just as a norm. Paul goes on to say, but when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. That's the way we were, but that was before we met Jesus, right? He says he saved us according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that, being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now, there's a lot of confusion in churches today about good deeds or good works. So many, I think it's a good percentage of people that attend churches think that their good deeds have a part in saving them, gaining God's approval gaining his love, gaining entrance into heaven. But he says so clearly here, as he does in Ephesians 2, that uh, no way. We're not saved by our good deeds. We're saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. So we need to move past that confusion. But some people are also confused about good deeds, thinking they have nothing to do with salvation. But in fact, they do. They reflect the fact that we've been saved. They show our hearts have been changed. And uh, so good deeds are what we were created for, he said in Ephesians 2.10. And so what we need to understand is that when we open our hearts to Christ, 
when we believe in what he's done for us, we receive the Holy Spirit into our lives. And that's God's goodness, among other things. Certainly his goodness. And that expresses his kindness. And here's the thing. Kindness and goodness are twins. If you just express kindness towards someone again and again and continually without goodness, which is the moral quality of what is right, then you just indulge that person and maybe enable that person in the wrong direction. But God's goodness and kindness come together so that kindness really helps and lifts up people when they are expressed in God's kind of kindness and goodness. We're heirs, heirs as children, so that we've received it and we can pass it on. But we need to be ready to do good deeds, a willingness, a desire. That has to begin uh, to inform us. Secondly, the kindness and goodness of God challenges us to engage spontaneously and intentionally in acts of kindness. He continues in verse 8. Speaking of the gospel, which he's just been talking about, this is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. So first we were to be ready for good deeds. Now we are to be careful to engage in them. So that implies some thought, doesn't it? It's like, well, if something ever happens, I'll do it. No, we think about it. We pray about it. We ask God to show us what good deeds he wants us to do. And then we also become the kind of people who spontaneously uh, respond with kindness in conversations, in actions when we have the opportunity to do something for someone who needs something. And so he said we need to be careful um, to do these good deeds. And he said it's profitable if we do so. I heard about a woman who was at a bus stop and uh, she noticed on the side of the bus stop, a shabbily dressed man. She was a little nervous anyway because she had just cashed her tax refund check and had a little bit more money than she normally carried. So she took a few steps back and uh, then she saw another man walk over to him, lean down and whisper something in his ear and give him some money. She was convicted. And she thought, I need to do an act of kindness too. So she walks over, takes $10 from her purse and hands it to him and whispers, never despair, never despair. And she felt good the rest of the day. The next day she came back to that bus stop and there he was again. And uh, she wondered how he was doing and before she could inquire, he got up and came over to her and gave her $110. She was dumbfounded by that and uh, she said, what's this? He said, you won, lady. Never despair, paid 10 to 1. <laughs> Doing good deeds is profitable. But I can't promise that it's always going to pay off 10 to 1 or that it's going to pay 1 to 1. In fact, good deeds often cost us, right? They often cost us in times of the time involved with that individual or the expense maybe financially, the effort that is involved in helping someone out, it, it can even be sacrificial. 
But isn't that in whose steps we're following, the one who sacrificed on our behalf? In fact, this same Jesus talked about this in what we call the Sermon on the Mount. Here's how Luke expressed his words. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. That's a high bar, isn't it? That's kindness. That's goodness. Even to these kinds of people. He goes on to talk about when somebody strikes you on one cheek, turn the other also. And if somebody slapped you in the first century, that was not an intent to hurt you physically. That was an insult to which you could respond to. And Jesus is saying, turn the other cheek. So in our culture, if somebody sends you a nasty email, somebody says something uh, that disses you, if somebody cuts you off in traffic, and this happened Friday night after the service. Uh, we took Oscar home, I was coming back, and I had a green light to turn on, and this moped come right there. And I'm like, and Dee said it when he cut me off, remember, be kind. And I said, okay, all right. Yeah, when we're insulted, how are we going to respond? Uh, it, we have to practice this, okay? Jesus uh, went on to say, treat others the same way you want them to treat you. Well, there it is. Motives matter, don't they? Because we can do an act of kindness for the wrong reason. And that's kind of artificial. Uh, in fact, um, the Apostle Paul speaks of the fruit of the Spirit, which we've referenced in the last several weeks from Galatians chapter 5. We've covered each one of these things where he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. This is the fruit that comes from the Spirit of God in our lives as we interact with those around us, increasingly as we're under the control or empowered by the Holy Spirit. But we have to be careful because not only do we as believers have the Spirit of God within us, we still have resonant within us that old nature and we can be directed by the Spirit or we can fall prey to letting that old nature, our old pattern, our old habits direct us as well. And that is a fake kind of fruit. For instance, when uh, we give someone a compliment, and we really don't mean it, but we're trying to get them to do something for us. That's not from the Spirit of God, is it? That's manipulation. That'd be fake fruit. Or we could maybe give a gift to someone who has a much greater capacity to give us a greater gift yet, and we're hoping that'll prompt that. That's not really the Spirit of God either. He said, give without expecting anything in return in this same passage. And so that would be artificial, fake fruit. If you come to our house, we have a bowl of fruit sitting on a shelf. And uh, if you were to pick up one of those shiny apples and take a bite out of it, you'd realize that's plastic. <laughs> and uh, maybe you'd break a tooth. But it wouldn't be very satisfying. And it really isn't satisfying either when we are doing what appears to be a good thing for the wrong reason, fake fruit. In fact, uh, the Apostle Paul, when he talks about goodness, he could have used a very common word for goodness in the Greek New Testament called kalos. He didn't. 
That, that kind of goodness means outward appearance. You see a beautiful sunset. Oh, how good is that? Uh, or a waterfall. That's really good. Kalas. He used the word agathos, which is an internal moral quality that wants what is right and best. And so he's saying this is the kind of uh, attitude, this is the kind of motive that we ought to have when we express kindness to the people around us. In Proverbs we read this, Insincere talk that hides what you are really thinking is like a fine glaze on a cheap clay pot. A hypocrite hides hate behind flattering words. They may sound fine, but don't believe him because his heart is filled to the brim with hate. So motives matter. And when we really understand that God has given us an amazing kindness and goodness, uh, it prompts us to want to extend that to others. And you know something? When we receive that from others, other people around us, same thing happens in our lives. That happened in a big way to Aaron and Shelley Okubo. And uh, I've asked Aaron to come this morning and share with you about that act of kindness and what it meant in his life and in the life of his family. So please welcome Aaron now as he comes to share with us. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you all for allowing me to share my story of an act of kindness that I received. Let me take you back to the year 2006, 10 years ago. My two sons, Shane, 15 years old, and a freshman in high school, and my son, Austin, was 12 years old, a sixth grader, and I was around 50, 50, around there. Of course, I had black hair and lots of hair at that time. And my wife, Shelly, was... Um, well, when she was reading my speech, she said, don't you go there. You know, yes, boss. Anyway, at the, at the end of um, March, I was diagnosed with cirrhosis of the liver. So it's the hardening of the liver. And I was immediately placed on the organ transplant list. On June 6th, I was taken to the emergency room at St. Francis Hospital. I was really really sick, and they informed us that my liver, as well as my kidney, was failing. As the days and weeks went by in the hospital, uh, my condition even got worse. I had difficulty breathing as water was accumulating in my lungs, and I still recall having to drain the water from my lungs three times while I was in the hospital. While I was in the hospital, my two sons, um, Shane and Austin, both made it to the Aya Little League Baseball All-Star team, but unfortunately I couldn't be there. And with the support of players' parents, they, were, they called me with uh, update scores and how the boys were doing. Also, if Shelly were able to make it, she would give me a call too. The players' parents were really supportive. They volunteered. Uh, taking turns to pick up Shane and Austin at home to take them to practice and, and their baseball games. And also, if Shelly couldn't make it, we would drop them off at home. And they also were supportive of, of encouraging me, 
both of us, and also saying prayers, visiting me at the hospital, um, making me feel good, etc. Shelly, every day after work and weekends, she would come and be with me at the hospital by my side. She told, she told me once that her relationship with the Lord was strengthened while, while the difficulty times, sorry, with the times, at the difficult times. Her friends would meet her at the hospital, bring her food, which I, unfortunately I couldn't eat. I had to stick with hospital food. Uh, bring her magazines to read, music to listen to, and was there to support her in every way possible. She was relieved that she had so many friends and family um, and the shoulders to lean on at the difficult time. Eventually, I was transferred to the intensive care unit, and that's when I realized I was really, really in bad shape. I told my two brothers, my sister and mother, um, to please take care of them if I didn't make it, make it. Uh, I was literally on um, death's door. Then the ultimate gift of kindness happened July 29th. A organ donor family lost a loved one, and they had agreed to donate their lost loved one's organs and tissues, and I was very fortunate to receive a liver and a kidney. It was such a miracle, and we all thank God for it. A doctor had mentioned to us that after 10 hours of surgery, that actually I had only 10, 8 to 10 hours left to live if I didn't get the surgery. My donor family exhibited this kindness to me as stranger. We never met, but I would forever be grateful for them to give me a second chance of life. I found Jesus, and I was baptized here August August 2007 with my boys. Life could not be more fulfilling, and I thank God for what he has blessed me with. Thank you. <laughs> thank you so much, Aaron. Aaron and Shelley have been the recipient of kindness, and they do pay it forward. I mean, you can see Aaron once a month on Wildlife Avenue with the Love Your Neighbor crew picking up trash, painting over graffiti, or doing free home repair in our community, and just a blessing to so many people. But uh, Paul said we are to be ready to do good deeds, and he said to be careful to engage in them. One of the ways, just one of the ways that we can be careful to engage in good deeds is to become an organ donor. I wrote about that in the article in your bulletin, how to, how to do that. It's pretty simple. They'll put it on your driver's license. And if, if one of us checks out of here sooner than we had thought we were going to, guess what? We don't need our organs. Uh, we're going to get a new body when we step into the presence of Jesus and someone else might be the recipient of our kindness if we do that. So be ready for good deeds. Be careful to engage in them. And then there's one more. We are to learn to do good deeds. The principle is the kindness and goodness of God instructs us to live useful lives as we respond to the needs of people around us. Paul says in verse 14, our people must also learn to engage in good deeds, to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. Another version has it, so they won't be useless. Well, don't we all want to be useful? 
wouldn't it be a wasted life for us to come to Christ, think, oh, I got my ticket to heaven, now I can live for myself? No, that's not the purpose. His purpose is much greater and much more fulfilling and would bring much more joy to us and to others if we will learn to do good deeds to those around us. I want to tell you an amazing story. And it's sandwiched between two weddings. The first wedding took place 28 years ago today. It was May 15th. 1988, Carl Ralston called me and asked if I would marry he and his fiancée, Lori, and I agreed to do so, provided we could meet for some counseling beforehand. So I met them and uh, counseled them, shared the gospel with them. Uh, I thought they really made a commitment to Christ, and we went down to Eternity Bay over here by the blowhole and had the ceremony. And uh, then uh, they went back to Ohio, and Dee and I a year later moved to Oregon. And uh, we came back four years later in 1993. And then in 1988, or excuse me, 1998, Carl called me again and said, Lori and I want to renew our vows, our 10th anniversary. Would you do that? I said, sure. So we met. We went down to Eternity Bay, and... Somewhere along the line, Carl said, you know, I got a confession to make. We really didn't make a commitment to Christ last time, 10 years ago. But we went back to Ohio and got saved. And he told me this story. He said that, you know, he owned an insurance company and things were going really well. He said, uh, I had the red sports car, the house on the lake. Uh, I was sitting there one day looking at which Rolex watch I was going to buy. And I thought... This doesn't bring me any joy. It just was empty. And he thought, there's got to be more to life than this. So he said, I prayed, God, if you're real, would you show me? And he said, then he began to study. He began to read the writings of C.S. Lewis. He read Josh McDowell's Evidence That Demands a Verdict and other things as well as scripture. And then in 1991, he had come to Christ. And so now, these years later, in 1998, here we were with the renewal of vows. And so they're here this weekend, and I've asked Carl to come and share with you what happened after 1998, because it's an amazing story of God's kindness and goodness. Please welcome Carl. Uh, I want to start by talking about January 2003. This was 12 years after I was a Christian. I was on vacation with my mentor, a Bible teacher who had led me to Christ, and I asked him about Galatians 2.20 and how, what it meant for us to be crucified with Christ and to have him live through us. And he told me about all of the Bible, how it tied into that mystery that we can truly exchange our lives for the life of Christ through us. And as he talked about that, I became excited about that idea. I started praying every day, begging God to make that true, to my, true in my life, to crucify every speck of me. But ironically, the more I prayed it, the more silent God seemed to be in my life. Kind of fast forward 11 months, uh, all through that silence, I was going through the dark night of the soul. Some of you may have heard about that. And I got to Chiang Mai, Thailand on a missions trip 
where they flew missionaries in from all over Asia, and they were telling us what God was doing in each of their countries. And the last missionary that spoke was a guy from Cambodia, and he talked about child sex trafficking and that that was happening to up to a million children a year. I have a mathematical mind, and I kind of quickly figured out that was 114 an hour that were being trafficked for the first time. But then he said, we have success stories in Cambodia as well. And he put a picture up of New with three other girls. And Christ did something in my life that day. I could just see Jesus shining through her picture. And I really engaged with that picture of her being my sibling in Christ. I lived 12 time zones away on the other side of the world, but I knew she was my sibling in Christ. He said that she became a Christian at seven. She was a Vietnamese refugee, and they had started a school for those kids. And she was attending their church. She got baptized, started telling others about Christ and growing as a Christian herself. But her grandmother was an animist, so she worshiped idols and didn't like the fact that New was a Christian. So whenever New would go to church, her grandmother wouldn't feed her and often beat her and threatened to sell her into the sex trade. And just about that time, as I was relating to her as my sister, the missionary said that when she was 14, New's grandmother carried out that threat and sold her into the sex trade. And it was at that moment in time that God broke those 11 months of silence in my life and impressed upon my heart just two words, remember New. I broke down crying, overwhelmed with the thought of what was happening to her. And the seminar ended, the missionary left, he had to go back to Cambodia. A day or two later, I flew back to America. And within a week, on my knees praying one day, I told God that till the day I died, I would do everything within my power to stop this from happening to other children. And I would try and help new. I knew I couldn't live my life as a comfortable businessman anymore. I knew this was changing my life in a good way. So I started looking for new. I went the first time in April of 2004, and I learned that 90% of the Vietnamese refugees lived along either the Tonle Sap or the Mekong River in Cambodia. I had that picture of new. And with an interpreter, I just stopped everybody I could find and said, do you know these girls? Do you know their families? Do you know how I could find them? I ended up taking six trips over a two-and-a-half-year period and finally found New in July of 2006. I gave her a little picture book that I carried with pictures of my wife and daughter and I, all our contact information, explained to her the story and that we felt God wanted us to help her. And then she had to leave. She worked in a hair and nail salon. That's how she avoided being trapped in the sex trade. She went to school for cosmetology and gave her grandmother the money so she would stop selling her. And then I had to fly out to America because I didn't know I was going to find her on that trip. Came back two months later told New in September of 2006 that we were going to open a children's home and we were going to choose 15 girls from her neighborhood where she was sold. In that area of Phnom Penh, 77% of the girls were being sold into the sex trade at that time. And so we, I explained to New that 
we wanted her to work with us, teach the older girls cosmetology for half a day and go to school half a day. We would give her the same pay, but she would have weekends off. Currently, she was working 28 days out of the month. And in that moment, she asked through the interpreter, when can I start? And I knew at that point, God had called me to the one million children this was happening to, and to the individual knew, and I knew that she was gonna be okay, and that I was fulfilling that call. I think Pastor Ron's gonna talk about kind of the completion of that call in a moment. But because of her prayer in the worst moment of her life when she was sold that first night, she prayed and said, God, would you use me to stop this to happening from other children. Remember New started its first home in January of 07 with News Help, and now we have 57 children's homes in 12 countries around the world, and over 1,300 children were saved because of her prayer. They've never experienced the horrors of the sex trade. Our mission as an organization is very narrow focused. It's ending child sex slavery through prevention. And an awesome way that God is doing that is when, when we find out a child sold from a village, we go to that village, we tell the village chief that we can help and we're there to help impoverished children. We find out the children who are at risk of the sex trade and we offer them a scholarship to leave that village, their area of risk, and come and live in our children's homes. We give them an education up through university. And what we've learned over the years is that after we go in a village, that village chief no longer lets those children be sold into the sex trade. When something traumatic happens in their family, like the death of a parent, and they would have been sold, now he calls us. And so through Jesus Christ's plan, we're stopping child sex slavery one village at a time around the world. And I pray that he gets all of the honor, glory, power, and praise. Thank you. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Carl and Lori, for responding to the Lord and his goodness and kindness in your lives. Lord willing, we're going to be able to include Remember New in a special offering, uh, either Thanksgiving or Easter. Well, I mentioned that there were two weddings one was in 1988, May 15th. The other one was last Sunday out at Paradise Cove. And Dee and I were invited for the marriage of New to Gabriel. And uh, she was walked down the aisle with Dad, Carl, and uh, he prayed over them and a blessing. Uh, they had a wedding ceremony. And, you know, it was... 12 years ago that she was sold into slavery, 10 years ago that Carl met her, and last Sunday the curse was really broken because she found uh, a life uh, that was way beyond what she had thought she would ever have. And for her it meant so much to enter into a marriage because so often kids that find themselves in that circumstance are just forever marginalized, and that's it. But no, God had a greater plan for her life, and now she's working with Remember New, Carl and Lori, as they go to country after country and village after village, uh, rescuing these kids, preventing them from ever entering the sex trade. I just give thanks to God for you folks listening to his voice and responding 
to his kindness and goodness by passing it on to others. That's what God wants us to do, to be ready to do good deeds, to be careful to engage in those good deeds, and to learn how to do good deeds. It's a process in our lives. And once we've received the goodness of God through the kindness of Jesus, once we've opened our hearts to Christ, believing in him as our Savior, then we need to start with those closest to us, our spouse, those in our own family, our parents or our children or our grandchildren. Sometimes we're rudest to those we're closest to and kind to strangers. But no, we start with those closest, but then keep moving outward in those concentric circles to those we work with, those that we go to school with, those that we meet, strangers. And we, having received God's goodness and kindness, then express it to those around us and put his glory on display. That's his challenge to each of us this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful for your goodness that would reach out to us in kindness through Jesus, our Savior. We're grateful that you not only would save us, but that you'd use us for your purposes. And Lord, sometimes we think it's a small action, but you can touch the world through that act of kindness. And you do so again and again. And I pray that each one of us would realize you want to do that in our lives. In some small way, as we respond to you, just going forward to reach out to those around us with our words and with our actions, empowered by your Holy Spirit, and know that this makes a difference in our lives and in the lives of others for all eternity. Do that work within us, Lord. Use this for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.